I think that those families who do see that their kids are thriving a bit more, not being in the traditional classroom, and who are a bit disillusioned by uh, the, the taste of, of school that they've seen during the pandemic time, I think those families might opt for something different. And even if it's 2% or 3% of all the families who are doing remote schooling right now, that'll be a huge number of people. And that could be a big influx into the world of alternative and self-directed education. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. During this time of global school upheaval, I wanted to bring back to the podcast self-directed learning advocate Blake Bowles. Longtime listeners to this show might remember Blake from our previous discussion on unschooling. If you haven't listened to that, it's worth going back and checking it out. I will link to it in the show notes page. Blake is the founder and director of Unschool Adventures, the host of the Off Trail Learning Podcast, and the author of several books on unschooling, including The Art of Self-Directed Learning, Better Than College, College Without High School, and his brand new book just out this month, Why Are You Still Sending Your Kids to School? Now, most of us are not currently sending our kids to school in the traditional sense and not by choice. I recognize that. But I'm guessing that this experience is disrupting many parents' ideas and assumptions about education and what it should or shouldn't look like for their child. And I know many are reconsidering whether they'll send their child back to school once they do reopen. This is precisely why I wanted to have Blake back on the show. Even parents who can't wait for schools to reopen will get a lot out of this conversation, as we've pretty much all been thrown into this grand experiment in remote learning together. I hope you find this conversation as thought-provoking as I did. Oh, and one last thing, be sure to tune into next week's episode, as I'm bringing a new topic to this show, and one that has been requested by many listeners. That topic is sleep. I will be talking with Dr. Roberto Olivardia about the relationship between ADHD and sleep challenges, and he has a lot of strategies for children struggling with sleep. So that's next week. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss when it drops. And now here is my conversation with Blake. Hello, Blake. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Debbie. Good to be back. I'm happy to have you here for a very timely conversation. So actually, when we scheduled this conversation, it was initially the sole focus was going to be on your new book, which is called Why Are You Still Sending Your Kids to School? The Case for Helping Them Leave, Chart Their Own Paths and Prepare for Adulthood at Their Own Pace. And we are going to talk about that today. But Now we're also recording this in the days of COVID-19, and there's so much to talk about when it comes to unschooling and what's happening in families. So does that all sound like a good plan to get into that? Let's dive into the murky waters. (laughs) The murky waters, indeed. As a way to get started, I've read your bio in the introduction, and again, I encourage listeners, if you haven't and you're sparked by this conversation, definitely go back and listen to the first Uh, interview that I did with Blake. I'll have that in the show notes pages. But could you start by defining unschooling as a concept for those who aren't familiar with it? 
Sure, I think of unschooling as full-time self-directed learning. And so most homeschooling parents will start by thinking, okay, there's some things that my kid absolutely has to learn, math or foreign language or social studies, whatever it is. And then they can have some self-directed time um, after they do that mandatory stuff. And unschooling is about making the self-directed stuff paramount and making that first priority and saying, once my kid realizes that they need math or they need foreign language, uh, I'm putting faith in them that they will uh, figure out how to gain those skills, how to learn that content, how to jump through the necessary hoops. But the most important thing is that they learn how to be self-directed, they learn how to be intrinsically motivated, and that will solve most of their problems in life. Yeah, and this is what I love about this concept so much. And we also have talked about Ned Johnson and Bill Sticksrude in their book, The Self-Driven Child. I know that you're a fan. I know that I'm a fan. My listeners are like, okay, Debbie, enough with this book, because I talk <laughs> about it all the time. Yeah. But there is a lot of research, right, that backs up this idea that given a chance to explore and and learn in a way that taps into their intrinsic motivation that these kids, even differently wired kids can be very successful. I, I agree. And I would like to reinforce your obsession with that book because <laughs> the self-driven child is excellent. And Bill and Ned did a much better job of speaking to a wide audience of parents, parents who are firmly in the conventional school system uh, than I have ever done in my books. And uh, I had Ned on my podcast and, and I said, Hey, your book essentially implicates conventional schooling at every turn. You don't say it explicitly, but it's there. And he said, yeah, we couldn't publish the book if we were going to be so inflammatory. So I agree with you, but we couldn't write those words in the book. And so I think all of us are of like mind here. So there's so many things I want to talk with you about today. So I, I want to have the conversation flow in a way that makes sense for listeners. But even just to talk about specifically what's happening right now, because again, as we're recording this, kids are really across the board home learning, or they're in some sort of a home education environment, whether they're doing virtual school, whether their schools are saying you're on your own, whether parents are saying my kid is not doing what you're asking, and we're going to do things on our own. Can you talk about What's happening right now? How how would you define what parents are experiencing in terms of this kind of new model that we're have been thrown into? The best definition that I've come across is remote schooling. That's what's happening. It's not fair to use the term homeschooling, like we see in many big you know media articles, uh, because homeschoolers are not homeschooling right now. Homeschoolers are not allowed to go to the parks, the libraries, the museums, to hang out with the homeschool co-ops. Uh, their lives are severely restricted. And so this is not a grand experiment in homeschooling, even though kids are spending lots of time in home. And so I'm sort of, uh, I'm agnostic on how this is going to turn out for homeschooling in general, Debbie, because if a lot of people associate what's happening now with the term homeschooling, that will actually be quite a negative association. But I, I do feel optimistic that there will be some sliver of families for whom this turns out to have positive effects. And when school resumes, let's say in fall, um, they're going to say, do we have to go back to that? W what are our other options here? They will have received a chance to rethink 
the normal approach. And that will be a beneficial thing in the long run. Yeah, I agree with you about the potential backlash. And I've seen this come up a lot in just the Facebook groups that I participate in, whether it's my Tilt Together or some homeschooling, unschooling Facebook groups that I'm in, that everyone's saying, to be clear, what you are experiencing is not homeschooling. And and I do have a concern about perpetuating misunderstanding about how homeschoolers, unschoolers actually, you know, do school. I completely agree. And uh, it's sort of the worst version of homeschooling that's being forced upon everyone right now. Because parents have little control, kids have little control. Parents are being thrust into this position of having to enforce school deadlines and rules and, and goals, while at the same time having to adjust to their own career shifts and having to work from home or, or not working. And so it's just a really hard situation for absolutely everyone. It's a, it's a weird time. It is a weird time. And I'm also hearing this is definitely the minority of my audience, but there are families out there whose kids may be not on Zoom all day or trying to replicate school in a virtual way and are instead doing more of what would look like unschooling in the way that you've defined it. And they're noticing that their kids' anxiety levels are dropping and that they're actually thriving more than they did in a school setting. And now they're thinking, hmm, I don't know that we're going to return to school. Have you noticed that? And what are your thoughts on that? I have. And I admire the parents who say, I'm not putting up with this BS anymore. I'm not going to to play this role that you're asking me to play in response to the school system. And they essentially say, school's out for the rest of the school year. And so do whatever you want. Uh, relax, do stuff that interests you. Just, you know, don't create chaos in the house. And this is essentially the de-schooling process in action. And I think some of those families are the ones who are going to think, uh, more seriously about self-directed learning, about unschooling, or even conventional homeschooling when school returns in the fall. You mentioned the word de-schooling. Can you define that for us? Yeah, it's sort of like a hard reset on your kid's motivational system. Uh, if they've spent a lot of time being pushed and pulled around by extrinsic motivators, grades, tests, gold stars, threats of detention, uh, it takes a while to re... <laughs> to remember what intrinsic motivation feels like. And there's this rule of thumb in the unschooling community that for every year that a kid has been in school, give them one month of totally hands-off de-schooling in which you as a parent do not make any hard demands of how they spend their time. Again, assuming that they're they're being nice, respectful human beings. This is not a, a call for anarchy in the household. <laughs> That's a good clarification. <laughs> so, okay. I would love to address this article that we were discussing earlier uh, before mm-hmm. I actually hit record. This is an article that's been shared widely in groups that I'm in. It was in Harvard Magazine, and it was about the risks of homeschooling. You know, And I'm using air quotes when I say risks, but it was a very anti-homeschooling article. Can you kind of summarize the point of view of the article and the conference that was supposed to happen surrounding this conversation? Sure. The article was not new or surprising. It's the same thing that uh, we've seen for decades where someone who feels concerned about the welfare of children says, hey, homeschooling laws in the United States are so relaxed that they can be used and they have been used 
to cover up cases of child abuse, of hardcore neglect, of hardcore sheltering and attempted indoctrination. And the author of the article cites the book Educated by Tara Westover, which when I read that book, it's a fantastic memoir. But the first thing I thought was, oh my gosh, this is what people are going to associate with homeschooling. And that is what came out of this this Harvard article. Essentially, this professor said, homeschooling is just a big cover-up for abusive parents. And then the homeschooling universe online immediately pushed back and said, you don't know what you're talking about. And of course, they're correct. But this Harvard professor also has part of the truth, too, uh, because there are documented cases of terrible things happening because there was no set of eyes on this kid outside of their own immediate family. And so it's, it's a really tendentious conversation. And it's, I don't think that there are any easy answers here. People who say you should definitely highly regulate homeschooling almost to the point of, of making it impossible. To me, those people are clearly wrong and they're not looking at the evidence of successful homeschooling in the United States and in other countries over the past many decades. But on the other side, people who say homeschooling is 100% a family's right and there should be zero oversight and that's an illegitimate function of, of the government. I don't think those people have all the truth either because when we point to some of these really horrible things that have happened that are often associated with more hardcore religious families, for example, an educated Tara Westover's family was, was considered outsiders in their own sect of Mormonism. And so those cases do exist and we have to address that reality. We can't just brush it away because uh, the people who are organizing this conference, for example, they're concerned about child welfare in in a very universal sense. They want to make sure no kid is allowed to be horribly abused. And, and that's where they're coming from. It's a positive motivation, and we just need to make sure that they don't go too overboard with unintended consequences. Yeah. Have you, people have been reaching out to me and asking if I formally responded or written about it. Have you played a role in the the counter argument to, to this dialogue that's happening right now? No, and I, I think that there's been enough of a, a flood of counter arguments already that my voice is not necessarily needed here, nor would it be that useful. Um, homeschooling is very popular. If anyone actually tried to change the laws in the US, there would be a lot of grassroots uh, resistance to that. I don't actually feel that this conference that's being organized at Harvard is that threatening. It's like a small group of academics that are coming together to discuss what they see as potential overreaches of homeschooling. And it's that's all it is. It's like this tiny little conference. As far as I understand it, this is not some policy-making summit to radically restrict the rights of homeschoolers all over the US. Of course, theoretically, it could turn into that, but I just don't see it there. Um, and the co-organizer of this conference, Jim Twyer, is a law professor who I had on my podcast. And, and that episode came out surprisingly at almost exactly the same time as the Harvard article. And the book that Jim co-authored called Homeschooling, it's sort of an academic book that came out in 2019, is a really fair and even-handed look at all of the, the different needs and conflicting issues that happen in the homeschooling world. And honestly, this is a lot of stuff that super enthusiastic homeschooling advocates are not aware of and don't like to think about or discuss. And so, I, for one, welcome 
Jim's voice in this discussion. I think it's an important and a necessary one. Well, and it's interesting and it, to think that, yeah, maybe one of the reasons why this has gotten so, so much attention is just the association like Harvard Magazine that instantly makes us think, oh, gosh, this is something we need to pay attention to. But it's it's nice to put it in context too. this. These aren't policymakers. This is a potentially small conversation. It, it is. And that Harvard Magazine piece was just one article by one professor who clearly is biased against homeschooling. It could have appeared as an opinion piece in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. There's many places where someone is, is allowed to, to express their radical opinion. And that's why I don't feel that threatened. Mm-hmm. Yes, because it has the imprimer of, of Harvard on it. People think it's, it's more special. It's more important, but it's not like Harvard University came out in, you know, in defense of the, uh, make homeschooling illegal everywhere position. That's, that's not how I interpret it, at least. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. We'll be right back after this quick break. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to uplevel our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, Whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes, developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites, turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60TILT at greenchef.com slash 60TILT. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. 
Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. So, all right, I want to pivot and talk about your book. And I, I want to hear more about the impetus for writing it. I, you know, I, since having you on the show, I, I follow your work and I, I backed your Kickstarter campaign for this book. So I really believe in your message. And I'd love Thank to you. know, uh, well, you're welcome. Uh, I'd love to know why you've written a number of books, uh, The Art of Self-Directed Learning, Better Than College, College Without High School. Tell us about this book and what you, the message you felt was so important to share. Most of my previous books were written for young people, uh, either teenagers or college-aged people, um, as the audience. And eventually I realized that my audience is really parents. And honestly, it's mostly moms. And they're the ones who find my books and they hand them to their kids or to to other people in their lives. And so one part of this book was me finally accepting who my audience is. And so I said, I'm going to write a book for parents. And I finally feel ready for this. Uh, there was one part of me that didn't feel ready for a long time. Uh, and that's the part that says, Blake, you're not allowed to write a book for parents because you are not yet a parent. And uh, I finally accepted that after working with teenagers for 15 years, over 20,000 contact hours through my own programs, through summer camps and other people's programs, that I probably have enough experience working with other people's kids to have some sort of informed viewpoint and perhaps a, a more objective viewpoint just because I've worked with so many different teenagers. Um, that I said, I'm going to write this book. And there are some overlaps with my previous books. There are a, a lot of points that I've made about how the kids get into college if they don't go to school, about what they can do in the college years if they think that higher education is not the right fit at this moment. But there was a lot of other stuff that I really wanted to put out there. Um, for example, there is a lot of nuance in the research, the academic research that's been done in the alternative education world, especially in the homeschooling and the unschooling world. And some of it is kind of surprising in the sense that it's, it's highly flawed research. Uh, some of the most popularized research comes ultimately from the HSLDA, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, and they don't do a very good job historically of comparing homeschoolers to their socioeconomic peers when they're saying homeschoolers do better in college, homeschoolers do better on standardized tests. None of that is true as far as I've seen, but there is some truth that I think is reassuring, which is that the best research shows that homeschooling will neither hurt nor help your kid when it comes to traditional academic indicators or getting into college or performing in college or getting into whatever career path um, a young person wants to get into. It, it simply does not make a significant difference one way or the other. So that's something I really wanted to share in this book. Also, I've been reviewing the, the work of Peter Gray, his arguments that are based on um, anthropology and the idea that hunter-gatherers or what other anthropologists call forager societies, the fact that they let their kids play all day. Um, that's an argument that I pick up and explain and refine in my book, because I think this idea of work versus play is is very interesting and very deeply, uh, deeply ingrained. And we think that, yes, it's okay for young kids to play, but as kids get older, just playing all day is no longer an acceptable thing. And and to me, there is a good amount of truth to that, but it's not because of our societal mores. It's because adolescents want to contribute. 
they want to become part of adult society. And historically, we have enabled them to be part of adult society and to contribute. A 14-year-old 100 years ago probably had real responsibilities and real freedoms and felt like they were progressing towards adulthood in a meaningful way. And today, adolescents are in this weird limbo state where they are either legally prohibited from working or they are simply not able to do the more complex knowledge work that our society is increasingly demanding. And we've put them in this holding chamber we call school, give them a bunch of make work, act like it's really important, but really, it's a big signaling game. They have to jump through all these hoops to prove that they are conscientious, slightly conformist workers. It's School is more <laughs> about uh, – it, it makes it easy for employers to sort potential applicants. That is what I've determined, and that's what I explained in the book to be a big function of the conventional school system, in addition to it merely being uh, – a childcare service and also a social welfare service provider. So there's all this stuff that um, I wanted to share with the world that I think fills in a lot of the gaps and the doubts that parents have when they hear about alternative options, when they hear about homeschooling, unschooling, radical alternative schools. They say, okay, that will work for some kids, but I don't think it's a safe route for my kid. And so I just brought together all of the best arguments from the domains of parenting, anthropology, higher education studies. Uh, and I just threw it all into one place. And I said, here are all the reasons why if your kid is not doing well in conventional school, you should stop forcing them to go to conventional school. So good. So good. And I love this idea of the, it's almost like the sorting hat, you know, that we're kind of creating these slots for kids to fall into so that schools and employers know how to select and make decisions. But as a part of what we're experiencing now, and maybe I'm jumping ahead to, to some of my bigger theoretical questions, but one of the things I'm thinking so much about is that we're not going to go back to the way things were. You know, I've just been hearing more and more schools saying they are either not going to grade this year, they'll do pass fail. You know, they're Schools are going to come up with new systems for assessing students' competency and mastery in certain areas. But isn't this kind of a big wake-up call overall that we need to look at individuals differently and not through these narrow metrics that we've used for so many years that, as you said, were really forms of babysitting or welfare, you know, um, these social structures that don't really have purpose in today's society in the same way? I would like to believe that, Debbie, but I am really skeptical about that. I think that the institution of conventional schooling, especially public schools, is really powerful. It's something that all of us want to believe in. We want to believe we can make it work. And also, it has that really important practical function of just taking care of kids and keeping them safe and warm and, you know, hopefully not abused during the day while their parents are working. And that's not going to go away. And so I am actually quite skeptical about whether this will lead to any large-scale changes or large-scale reassessment of how we're doing schooling or we need to make it more individualized. Maybe this will mean that there's going to be more blended learning as we move forward because a lot of people have seen the power of online distance learning, but I don't think that's a big paradigm shift in education. It's just a different way to do the same thing. So I wish I could be a bit more optimistic here. Uh, at this point, 
I'm hoping that there will be some slice of families who are doing the remote schooling thing right now who say, wow, my kid's mental health is improving. They're doing stuff that they're interested in. The baggage of school is no longer weighing on them. Uh, maybe these parents get a little taste of what school is actually like because they get to to peek into their kid's classroom right now because it's happening in their living room. And maybe some of the mystique of school has worn off. Um, you know, no adults choose to go back to K through 12 school once they've left. It's a place none of us want to return to. Maybe we'll go to a, a reunion where there's free drinks served, but we don't want to go back and relive our days in school because it's a, it's a place where we are often quite powerless and, and that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't inspire us, mm-hmm. right? So, um, I think that those families who do see that their kids are thriving a bit more, not being in the traditional classroom and who are a bit disillusioned by uh, the, the taste of, of school that they've seen during the pandemic time. I think those families might opt for something different. And even if it's 2% or 3% of all the families who are doing remote schooling right now, that'll be a huge number of people. And that could be a big influx into the world of alternative and self-directed education. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're, Amy, more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.
Yeah, I'm thinking there are lots of parents who are noticing maybe that, yes, my child is less anxious or seems to be engaging more, especially kids who are maybe older kids who are using this opportunity to do other areas of interest and focus on some other things. And I'm seeing this kind of question, right? So parents, it feels so big to make a decision like this because there's so much fear wrapped up in the unknowns about what this looks like. If this is a new concept for for families, you know, I was just thinking of the movie Speed and it's like, stay on or get off, stay on or get off, you know, and I think <laughs> a lot of parents are at that place, but the fear is real, right? The fear of uh, getting off the freeway and deciding to forge your own path is real for so many people, especially if this is something they've never considered before. So do you have thoughts on things parents could be considering or ways to kind of question the assumptions that they've had? Or is that really what they'll find within your book? They'll definitely find it within the book. I think that the fear is real. It's powerful. Uh, In the chapter I have about parenting, I describe what sociologists call the phenomenon of intensive parenting, which is this new norm, this new dogma uh, in which parents are considered to be almost godlike in their powers to shape the destinies of their children, both for better and for worse. And that puts parents into a very anxious position. It's like they have all this responsibility. And I cite a lot of research in the book saying, that is not true. You don't have as much control as you think. That's the title of chapter four. Um, and so I do push back against that anxiety and that fear in one way. But another way that I like to push back against it is, yes, there will always be a risk uh, if you take your kid off the standard educational path, not arguing that. But we have to look at the other risks too. And I say that there's three good metrics when you're considering whether school works for your kid or not. And those are engagement, boredom, and stress. Uh, If your kid goes to school and they are engaged for most of the day, they're happy to be there. Wonderful. Great. If they don't experience that much boredom or it's not a very negative form of boredom, then that's a good thing. And finally, if they have tolerable levels of stress, if the stress is mostly of the, the positive variety, for example, students who sign up for band, and they have this big performance coming up, and they're stressed about that, that's a a good form of stress. That's a form of stress we want to invite into our lives and learn how to navigate. But if your kid is experiencing toxic levels of stress, as uh, Ned Johnson and Bill Sticks read, describe it in The Self-Driven Child, uh, when they are completely overwhelmed by uh, the demands of school, and it could come from the teachers, it could come from their peers, if they are not able to cope on a day-to-day basis, if the boredom is overwhelming, if they are really seldom engaged, then it's a huge, huge risk to consider continuing to do that year after year. That is putting your kid into the meat grinder, and and every time they stick their head up for air, you're pushing it back down. That's what it means to keep sending your kid to school in a conventional school environment that's not working for them. And so, yes, there are risks to leaving the, the standard path, and there are also risks to staying on the standard path. And so, this is why parents are the only people who are highly qualified to make this assessment. They know their kids better than anyone else, hopefully, and, and they can determine whether those levels of engagement, 
boredom and stress are are manageable or even healthy, or if they're not. So good. And yes, that idea of us having less control than we think is so important. And that is a theme that comes up all the time when I'm talking with groups of parents is this idea that we need to, you know, make our child do X, Y, and Z, or, you know, there's a lot of homework monitoring going on, a lot of screen monitoring going on. And really, and we talked about this in our first conversation, our job is to help our kids become self-actualized. And and it, that part of that is separating ourselves and realizing they're on their own journey. They're creative, resourceful, and whole. Even, yes, when they have neuro differences, they are still on their own journey. And our job is not to control that, but to support them in becoming who they can best be, right? 100% agreed. Can you talk a little bit about screen time? Because this is something I know you talk about in your book, this idea, and, and maybe this is more so with, with older kids. I know that for my son, I have a 15-year-old, and he spends a lot of time on his computer, but he's, he's I don't even know what he's doing, but sometimes he's playing games, sometimes he's watching YouTube, but often he's like teaching himself Python coding language and trying crazy modeling things and, you know, in Blender and, you know, really going deep and, and really getting immersed in his projects. And so, can you talk about parents who might be leaning towards more of an unschooling approach, but are really concerned about what does that look like in terms of their kids' gaming or screen time habits? Sure. I don't actually dwell on screen time per se very much in the book. Um, I do spend a lot of time discussing gaming. Yeah, and sorry. That's what I'm... Activities. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. I mean, they're, they're often uh, one in the same. And I discuss video games and computer games specifically. I loved video games and computer games and arcade games and role-playing games. I, I was a huge gamer growing up, and I would finish my homework as quickly as I could. And then I would spend hours and hours in front of the TV or in front of the computer screen. And I, I kind of <laughs> share this funny history in the book of all these games that I felt in love with. And the theme that was consistent with all of these games is that as soon as any one of these games became easy, I was no longer interested in playing it. And I think there's a real lesson to be learned there, because it's the exact same situation today with some of the most popular games, Minecraft, Fortnite, The Sims. I'm probably missing a bunch of, of newer ones. I'm probably dating myself here. But when a young person is engaged with a game, the reward for, uh, let's say, completing a level in the game. It's not the end of the game. It's it's a more challenging level. That's what happens in World of Warcraft. When you complete a quest, you are rewarded with a more difficult quest. And what's happening here is young people are learning to voluntarily take on big challenges. Of course, it doesn't look like a challenge from the outside. If you, as a parent, have never played Fortnite or World of Warcraft or The Sims before, it just seems like a frivolous waste of time. And so it's very easy to judge it as, as um, a non-educational activity. But if we're looking at education from the perspective of self-directed learning and intrinsic motivation, rather than the perspective of checking off all of the boxes in the traditional K-12 through curriculum, then gaming turns into often actually quite a productive activity and one that we should often encourage kids to do while, while getting to know 
the games that they are uh, engaged with because, yes, there are some bad games out there. I'm not really standing up in defense of Candy Crush here. <laughs> that, is, that is not a very complex game. That's not a multiplayer game. I'm thinking more of uh, games like Fortnite, where it's a highly social activity. And a really important aspect of a game like Fortnite is that it is a place where kids go to be with each other and to be away from mom or from dad. And this is what uh, maybe roller skating rinks were in the 70s or malls were in the 80s and 90s. It's a place for young people to be social, develop their social skills. It's their own social network right there. A lot of parents don't really understand uh, Twitch. They don't understand Discord, all these platforms that are, are really quite new and where young people have mastery and they have control. Young people need to feel a sense of control in their lives, just like we adults do. And so they will gravitate towards those places where they can feel like they have some control, where they can develop some mastery, where they have autonomy. I mean, those are the ingredients of intrinsic motivation right there. And so uh, my favorite book that uh, I talk about a lot in my book is Reality is Broken by Jane McGonigal. And she is a game designer. You only have to read the first third of the book. She says, this is why kids love games from the perspective of positive psychology and it totally convinced me that there's a lot of value to be had there. She does not make the argument for unlimited screen time or unlimited games. Her research says that about 20 hours a week, which is about three hours a day, is uh, like the perhaps ideal amount of gaming. Once you get up to 40 hours a week or more than that, then she says the negative effects of gaming will outweigh the positive effects. It was super interesting. I want to check out that book. I live with two gamers, my husband and my son. So you know, I'll just say too, that I think there are a lot of just ideas among the non gamers in the world that it is a valueless activity, right? Or it's just, it's a waste of time, or it's not productive. And and I have certainly come around to a different way of thinking just from what I've seen and witnessed in my house. But it is something that I think if parents are having a knee-jerk reaction around it to just kind of question some of those ideas or maybe biases that you might have around gaming. Yes, please. <laughs> so as a way to wrap up, I would love if you have any words of wisdom to share for parents who are listening to this, whose curiosity is piqued, and maybe again, what they're seeing during this strange time of distance learning, remote schooling, what's happening in the world. And they're thinking, this might actually be a good fit for my child. And whether school starts up in the fall again or not, maybe we won't be going back and maybe we'll explore unschooling more. What would be any first steps that you would suggest a parent take to assess if this is really right for their child and their family? Well, Definitely grab a copy of my book, Why Are You Still Sending Your Kids to School? That'll start you off in the right direction. Um, I think that there's already a lot of evidence in most people's lives for the power of, of self-directed learning. And take a look at what your kids already do in a naturally engaged way. And, and look at that and say, can I imagine myself feeling comfortable letting my kid do that incrementally more. It doesn't have to be 100% of the time in the beginning. One of my favorite definitions of unschooling, I'll, I'll paraphrase, is giving your kids as much freedom as you can comfortably bear, you the parent. And so I believe that came from John Holt. And that's important, the comfortably bear part, because if you have this sort of dogmatic idea that 
the only way for your kid to become a self-directed learner is to completely let them do whatever they want all the time, I think the most likely outcome of that situation is that the pendulum will swing in the other direction. You will freak out and clamp down and say, okay, we tried the self-directed learning thing. It didn't work. So start with baby steps. Say, okay, the stuff that my kid is really into is uh, horseback riding and knitting. Can I imagine those things going from extracurriculars uh, that are done after school into something that my kid is is really diving into and that I'm going to support my kid in doing at a higher level. If you can imagine that, then I think you are definitely a candidate for doing something that's more self-directed, more unschooly. Um, again, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You can take baby steps in that direction. And what I explain in my book and uh, what countless numbers of homeschoolers and alternative school students have shown is that you really can help your kid leave conventional school, and you are not dooming them to some sort of life of economic deprivation. They can still go to college. They can still get jobs. They still become functional adults. All the evidence, both research and anecdotal, points in that direction. And so have faith in that and do what engages your kid. Wonderful. Wonderful summary. So, and you mentioned your book again. Can you let listeners know where they can connect with you and learn more about that book and and your other work, your blog, your podcast? Sure. It's easy. Just go to BlakeBowles.com and that's where you could find my podcast, my books, uh, my monthly newsletter, everything that I put out is there. Awesome. Uh, listeners, as always, I will have links in the show notes page, but I am a fan of Blake's podcast. It's called Off Trail Learning. So if this conversation is sparking you, definitely go check that out as well. Always very thoughtful conversations that always get me thinking about things differently. So uh, Blake, thank you so much. Congratulations on the book. I am excited to get my my hard copy, my tangible copy and hold it in my hot little hands. But it's um, <laughs> the work you're doing is so important. And I really appreciate this perspective and you sharing with us today. Thank you so much, Debbie. That means a lot to me. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, where you can download the transcript, Find links to Blake's website, his podcast, and his new book, Why Are You Still Sending Your Kids to School? Visit tiltparenting.com slash session 209. Don't forget to check out the newly updated resources page on Tilt Parenting. You will find hundreds of the best podcast episodes, books, and organizations that should be on your radar organized by NeuroDifference as well as my top eight books every parent of a differently wired child should have in their library. You can find all of that by going to tiltparenting.com slash resources. And my weekly reminder to please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by subscribing and leaving a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you so much for considering. And that's all for this week. Stay safe and well and take good care. And for more information on Tilt Parenting, visit www.tiltparenting.com. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. 
Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and, more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests, too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.